This show is sponsored by IdealWorkspace.com, which promotes a healthier way of working through their adjustable standing desk. Check out their latest smart adjustable standing desk at Altizen.com. A-L-T-I-Z-E-N.com. Welcome to Analyze Asia, the podcast dedicated to dissect the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. In the second part of our conversation, Samir Singh from TechTots.net and I discussed the changing alliances to rivalries with one, Google and Uber in the ride-sharing and autonomous vehicle space, and two, Niantic versus Nintendo in the mobile gaming space. Welcome back. Hi, Samir. Hi, Bernard. How are you doing? I'm good, and we have just gone through the first part of the conversation, which is about Apple's event on 7th September 2016. And what is interesting is that the final topic is about cars, and we talk about the Apple car. But in this second part, because it always takes time for me to get you on board to the show. So we actually really have a great title for this show. And the title for the, our next part of the discussion goes on the theme of with friends like these, who needs enemies? So coming, <laughs> so coming back to the car conversation. So we are going to first talk about Uber versus Google because recently mm-hmm. there are a couple of things that have happened. Google uh-huh. was an investor to Uber through Google Ventures in uh-huh. their Series B, Series stage. And they have a board member. Recently, Travis Kalanick blocked Yen Drummond, which is the chief legal officer for Alphabet, who was used yeah. to be part of Google, onto the yeah. board. They are really, Uber has used their own self-driving car technology and they are also working on their own navigation technology, basically yeah. trying to weed their need from using Google Maps. So I want yeah. to start off with this because like with friends like this, who needs enemies, right? How did they yeah. went from being allies to competitors now? Well, originally when GV invested in Uber, I think Google was keenly interested in transportation, but they, I mean, they were experimenting probably with self-driving cars, but they had no idea exactly what direction they were going to go in. So it was a way for them to learn about the transportation industry and also potentially curate a partner, right, in this case. So over time, Google, I think, decided that transportation fits in closely with their aims and goals. And so they wanted to do it as well. And and that's increasingly put them in competition with Uber. So initially what happened was, of course, they started their self-driving car project in Google. So originally people assumed that they were going to license that tech to automobile manufacturers, which didn't make a whole amount of sense because Android is licensed for free and Google's not the kind of company, at least their business model doesn't support a software licensing model. So that was odd. But since then, what they've done is, I think early this year, they added a ride-sharing aggregation option in Google Maps. So when you when you enter the transit or the navigation menu of Google Maps, it gives you multiple options, walking, driving, public transport, one is ride-sharing. And they only had a few partners, I think one in, in most countries. So Uber was one of them. So if you were in the US, you'd go to the ride-sharing option, you'd see the option to call an Uber. It would tell you how long it would take and, uh, and a fair estimate. Things that are already in Uber as an app, but it would pull pull them out and put them put them here. Now what they've done is they're, they've added many more ride-sharing options. So you, in, in the US, you, you have, when you go to that tab, you could actually compare prices and the estimated pickup time for a Lyft, Uber, and Get. So it's basically become a ride-sharing aggregator, and they've got nine different ride-sharing apps across 60 countries, which would be every relevant ride-sharing app. Right? But also Google is going to implement a ride-sharing service through Waze, right? Which it had Correct, acquired yeah. two years ago, which is also a mapping service, but it's a social mapping service, basically. I think that's more of an experiment because Waze has a smaller user base than Google Maps. This is a good parallel to Facebook Messenger and WhatsApp. So Facebook looks looks at Facebook Messenger as a platform to experiment. They've put in chatbots in there and everything else. And WhatsApp is the platform where they implement where they will implement everything that works. And I think that's what Google is trying to do here. So with Waze, what they've done is they've it's a ride-sharing service, 
that doesn't rely on the network effect between drivers and riders. So instead of trying to attract a lot of drivers to the platform, what they've done is try and target people that are already commuting, they're already driving from point A to point B, and they can just pick people up on the way. So their fare is basically just gives them gas money. So I think it, it's just a way of collecting data to see how ride sharing works. When they're ready to implement it, they move it on to, to Google Maps. This is where you, you want to ask why don't they want to implement a, a network effect between riders and drivers, right? So I think Uber is built on that, that network, network effect. The more drivers they have, the more riders are attracted to it because the pickup time is fairly low. The service is very reliable. And that's why it's very, very difficult for sort of new entrants today to compete with the Uber. But if you start a self-driving ride-sharing service, the only thing that affects service reliability and pickup time is your fleet size. And there is no network effect between riders and drivers anymore. So that's a paradigm shift, so to speak, that enables new competitors, in this case, Google, to come in and create a ride-sharing service. And it's very, very easy for them to add that self-driving ride-sharing service as a tab on top of Uber within Google Maps. I want to bring back a conversation that we have one year ago in the first anniversary where you made this really interesting point that Google invested in Uber as a hedge against its self-driving car effort. So I'm going to bring back that point and I'm right. actually coming to that point that you're right mm -hmm. in what Google is currently doing. The second part of it is that I think we have this conversation over Twitter and we banter a little bit about who owns the customer. So while I was in Silicon Valley, I met up with James Allworth and mm -hmm. his view is that the whole right sharing thing is about the business model and mm -hmm. it's about who owns the customer. So mm -hmm. to him, the battle, at least in the current day, Uber has won it, right? Lyft is no, nowhere close to them. So the yeah. question is actually what I was trying to drive at at that conversation was who owns the customers? I mean, Google Maps have the people who are driving, who are car owners. Yeah. Uber and Lyft is our people who can't afford cars and need a ride-sharing service to go from point A to point B. I think we have a difference in view in terms of how we think about who owns the customer context for Google and Uber, which is also why they turn from friends to enemies because they used to need each other, but now they don't need each other anymore. So can you talk a little bit about your rationale and then we get back to... All right, so first I'm going to challenge the idea that Uber is only used by people who don't have cars. I think Uber is used by people who have cars as well, but they've been out, for example, a night of drinking and you call an Uber. So Uber's got a relationship with multiple people, people who have cars, people who use public transport, tons of tons and tons of people. Beyond that, let's look at the kinds of people who use Google Maps and what their actual transport options are and who owns the customer, right? Okay. So I might be using public transport to commute to work. I'm using Google Maps, let's say, to look up which train I should be using or what time the next train is if there's some delays on certain lines. In that case, would you say the customer, my customer relationship is owned by Google Maps or by the transport network? The transport network is almost commoditized, right? It's a given. So Google Maps is where I get all my information from. That's what owns my customer relationship. Similarly, if I'm walking, if I'm driving, Granted, I have a relationship with the company that sold me my car, but I use Google Maps on a much more frequent basis. So I have a relationship with them. Now, when it comes to the Uber versus Google Maps, that's when it gets sort of interesting. First, Google Maps has a billion users. Uber has far fewer, which by right means anyone who's using Uber is also using Google Maps. Maybe not in the same context, but they're also using Google Maps. And if you look at recency and frequency metrics, we put this out on a blog post recently on App and Despite their engagement being spread across a billion users, the average Google Maps user and the average Uber user use it almost exactly the same amount of times per week or per day. So that means 
the customer relationship is owned by both Uber and Google Maps. At that point, almost everyone who uses Google Maps is in that transit window, right? Because that's basically what it's used for. That's the primary use case. Can you elaborate a bit about the user engagement? Because when I was in living in San Francisco, I Ubered almost uh-huh. every day. I think at least uh-huh. I take four rides per uh-huh. day. So they were using either Google Maps or Waze. So there's clearly no threat unless Uber start putting in their own navigation system into play that would limit that user engagement. Uh-huh. I want to get a specific point of view of what you mean by user engagement metrics for both apps. So user engagement, specifically the exact metric I'm talking about is the number of times someone opens an app in a week or a day. That data we put out in our blog post. So that number for an average user, which is an average across a billion users for Google, an average across possibly, I'm not sure what what that number is, I haven't checked, but a, a much smaller set for Uber. That number is basically on par. Now, of course, a lot of these users are opening both Uber and, and Google Maps, right? So they've, they've got that option in. So over time, what's going to happen is now that they've got, we've got this ride-sharing aggregation option in Google Maps, a lot of people are going to Google Maps to, go to, to be able to check or compare prices, at least, in the, at least in markets where you've got more than one ride-sharing option. The US, for example, is one of those markets. The moment you do that, you've got Google Maps has sort of got one a leg up on Uber because people are coming to, coming to Google Maps, seeing the ride-sharing options and taking the cheapest option. At that point, Google's got just as much of a customer relationship with an Uber user or a, or a Lyft user. And it's very, very easy for them to add in another option in there, which is, let's say, a self-driving car, which sounds interesting for an early adopter, so they might start using it. And then you've got word of mouth that spreads, and that's how adoption increases. So I think that's the crux of it, of who owns the customer. It's that both apps have very, very strong and comparable engagement, except Google Maps is better known. It's got a, lo- a lot more users, right? And it's got much more, that ride-sharing aggregation option is going to be a killer feature in this context. Mm. I thought I should just add one more data point to this is that sometime in 2015, they reached their first billion rides and mm-hmm. six months later, they reached their two billion rides. So the amount of scale of Uber's usage of navigation probably has also increased in an exponential way as well. It has, but the data that I'm comparing is from last month. It's, it's very recent. Who has the upper hand on this between Uber and Google? Since they have now run from friends to enemies then. I'm going to say Uber still has the upper hand and I have a specific reason why. Uber's obviously the incumbent. They're well known. And the key here is to be able to get into that autonomous ride-sharing business first because that's when you're well known. If Google inserts that into the Google Maps transit menu first, people start to, be, people start to associate Google Maps with ride-sharing with what ride-sharing has become. And right now, it's Uber who's doing it. And, and the biggest reason to be sort of positive on Uber's chances is Travis Kalanick, basically, the moment they launched the uh, the first self-driving fleet in Pittsburgh, he came out and said, the moment we knew Google was entering the space, we knew we had to create a self-driving ride-sharing business. If not, we would have no business. So he, I think it's important that he recognizes the threat, which is fairly rare among uh, the tech and analyst community. It's very, very rare to recognize a, the scale of a threat. I still think Google is going to push hard on this. I don't know what time frame is, but the fact that Uber has come out first gives them an advantage. But to me, it looks a little bit more like, you know, Google is going in the Facebook battle, like with Google Plus, just as what they're doing now with Uber, with Waze, with ride sharing. Uh, Isn't it too late now? No, because Google had no assets in social. Absolutely none. Pretty much everything Google did was transactional, which is you come in to find something and you get up. Or you come in to find something, you find your way, or you find you find an answer and you get up. Right? Google already has the most used transportation platform in the world, which is Google Maps. 
So going from there to a ride-sharing service is just a simple step. Granted, you need to be to be able to create the technology and put the fleet in place. But from a customer relationship perspective, everything is already in place. Right. They have, can be the aggregator as well. My guess is if they implement the ride-sharing service, it's going to be through the aggregator exclusively. So there's not going to be a separate Google ride-sharing app. It's going to be in Google Maps. And there is the other incentive is that they own the Android operating system. So they, right, could even, they could, so they could even make it even difficult for Uber to do the integration with regards to the smartphone because Uber it, really needs a smartphone to survive. Okay. And in fact, if you, if you use Google now, over the last couple of years, what, not a couple of years, last couple of months, what Google's been doing is they've been, whenever Google knows you're about to go to a particular place, say work or whatever, they've got a suggested card saying take UberX in your Google Now feed. And when you tap it, it takes you to Google Maps, the ride-sharing tab. And from there, you tap to go into Uber. Interestingly, that ride-sharing tab, the entire thing is an ad. So every time you click on Uber or Lyft, Google gets some money, which shows you that that tab is basically a, is, is one revenue model for, for Google Maps. So it's very, very easy for them to just replace that UberX tab with a Google ride-sharing service tab. And over time, as they make their way into the notification system, into Google Now on tap, it's going to be pervasive across the OS. So then they don't need an Uber app anymore. They can just press directly from the operating system layer then. Correct. And with instant apps, what's, this is something that Google announced this year in, at Google I.O. That that's an entirely different one-hour discussion, I think. Once that is enabled, people don't even need the Uber app or the Lyft app. Once you see that ride-sharing aggregation, when you just pick one of them, as long as you have an account, it immediately works. And so if you have a Google ride-sharing option there, they're all equally relevant and equally valid to you. Google has already lost half their self-driving car team in this summer. Mm-hmm. And yep. most of the self-driving car team that left earlier who built the company called Auto has also now uh-huh. joined Uber. Do you think Uber have a chance in the self-driving car space? Absolutely. And this is why I'm saying Uber still has a heads up despite Google resources and the tech that have already built. They're now an incumbent. They're the first mover in the autonomous ride-sharing space. They still need to fight off the aggregation option, which is going to be very difficult. But they still have a heads up. Eventually, what I, what I think is going to be is the moment autonomous ride-sharing comes into place, the market's no longer a winner-take-all. It's going to be more competitive because there are no network effects in place. It's just the size of the fleet that matters. Hmm. So in that case, I think Google's going to take some share of the market, but Uber, by virtue of being an incumbent, will still have the majority share. Probably just to help the audience to understand this, why is there no network effects in the self-driving car situation as compared to today with drivers? Today, the way it works is there is a network effect between drivers. So the more drivers there are, there's less pickup time, there's better service reliability. So that attracts more riders to that service. The moment you have an autonomous ride-sharing service, the one side of the network goes away. Supply side completely goes away. So all you have, you've got a fleet on one side, which, and the only thing you need to create a fleet is enough money to be able to get access to that fleet, which Google has or another large company would have. And then you have you have riders. So at that point, there's no network effect creating an entry barrier for for Uber, and that's why that's the biggest that's the biggest paradigm shift here. Unless that network effect goes away, Google's not a direct competitor. At least the aggregation still is a risk. So Uber is going to go autonomous soon with their project in Pittsburgh, and they're really trolling. Mm-hmm. So in mm-hmm. Singapore, there's a company called Newtonomy. They also trial mm-hmm. their self-driving car into taxis next year. But I thought I should just add, it's only for a very small area in Singapore. So mm-hmm. does that mean that these ride-sharing services are no longer asset-like anymore with their business model? That is an interesting question. I don't know the answer. That It's possible that this evolves into some model of or like the airline industry where you lease car, cars from a particular manufacturer. And uh, in fact, that's what Uber is doing here, right? They've been, they're working very closely with Volvo. I'm not sure if they've bought those cars or if they've leased them. 
but i think they will always be an external partner in world but yeah in that case it's even though you're leasing leasing them they are they are going to be asset heavy it's, it it can't be asset light anymore at least to the to the, to the extent it's been there today i don't think there are going to be people i know tesla's trying trying to push this where people own cars and they sort of put them on the ride sharing network i mean i don't see that happening so there is this world that even for this particular asset light model is still undetermined for the self driving car world then Okay, so I think we just got past one of them and let's get to the second part of it, which is funny is Niantic versus Nintendo. Niantic is owned by Google and Nintendo and a couple other people. The reason why to get to the same team or with friends like these, who needs enemies? Niantic versus Nintendo. So maybe we will start first by talking about their approaches. I mean, Niantic Lab is in the AR world. They have made location-based work. I think Sakan Toto, who came on the show a couple of episodes mm-hmm. ago made a very good point about what they really do in terms of the business models. So mm-hmm. what has actually happened and why do you see them setting themselves up for another conflict? Well, so let's first take the relationship between Niantic and Nintendo. Niantic was originally a startup within Google, which was wholly owned by Google. Since then, once they launched Ingress, Google spun them off as a separate company unrelated to the, to Alphabet at all, right? So I'm, I'm assuming Google or Google Share or uh, let's say Google executives own a pretty significant or a majority chunk in Niantic. And as a part of that spin-off and as a part of the creation of Pokemon Go, both Nintendo and the Pokemon company invested into Niantic as well. So I'm guessing they hold a minority stake in the range of 5 to 10%, which is a good parallel to Google's relationship with Uber. So once that happened, they launched Pokemon Go built on the data they've created from Ingress and the Google Places and Maps API. And of course, we, we already know what's happened to Pokemon Go. It's a massive hit. It's clear that Nintendo didn't think Pokemon Go would be as big as, as it is. I think they thought it would be big, but not this big. Because in parallel, uh, they've also been developing Super Mario Go, which is like their first real game for mobile. And the approaches could not be more different. So first, the revenue model, right? Now, Niantic's business model, I've always said, is it is the first defensible business model we've seen in gaming. This is because they originally built Ingress as an AR game. When we say uh, augmented reality, it, it it's largely based on virtual locations located around you on a, on a map. So it's almost geocaching, but it still fits that augmented reality concept. That was built on the Google Maps and Places API once they were within Google. Now, once they released that game, they asked users to submit what real-world locations should become in-game locations. So they received received millions, about 5 million submissions, many of which have become in-game locations. And they collected that data and they built a Niantic AR platform. And Pokemon Go has been built on top of that. So that gives them the ability to build multiple games and apps, and Niantic's already confirmed they do that, on this AR platform. And it's very, very difficult to replicate this platform. So I think Pokemon Go might be the first game that is this popular that still hasn't seen any rip-offs at scale. Almost any game, you name it, any popular game on mobile has seen scores and scores of uh, of basically clones. And that hasn't happened in Pokemon Go Slayers. That shows you that their business model is defensible. Now then you move to, to Nintendo. Now Super Mario Run is a running platformer, which is something we've seen before on mobile, but it uses Mario instead. And the revenue model is something that we've seen console-first companies, we've seen that approach before on mobile. So uh, there's a game developer called Telltale Games, they make fantastic games. They've got the Monkey Island series. They've took, they brought, they bought the rights to Monkey Island series from LucasArts. They've, they made Monkey Island 5. They've got a game called Wolf Among Us, which is fantastic. I'm a huge fan of that developer. But their revenue model is basically, they give you one episode of the game for free and you need to purchase additional episodes. And obviously that, that, that purchase is going to be much higher. The value of that is going to be much higher than a simple in-app purchase, which is pretty small. Now, 
a hardcore gamer would definitely make that purchase because these are very very high quality games i would make that purchase but there's not many other people that would the difference between console and mobile is console largely attracts people who self identify as gamers mobile attracts everyone people who just want to kill time right and a lot of these games a lot of these popular games including pokemon go have managed to successfully go and attract those users just because it's free to play so it's it's free to try and if you like it you stick around but super mario runs revenue model isn't conducive to that and i have to add most of these console games that use this free trial plus paid approach they've made most of their money on ios because ios as a platform that has the more valuable users they've made barely anything on android and this is the reason why super mario run is ios only it, it makes sense but if you if someone's expecting this to move the needle for nintendo on a financial basis i don't see it but you're thinking from the viewpoint of the mobile and console gaming model why doesn't nintendo at some point might go into niantic's model and well, second second nintendo uh-huh. is a little bit like disney they own tons of content ip they do they do yeah and that's the only competitive advantage now in fact yep. if you talk about the console business they are they they're better than they as well yeah going mobile is their last resort for them. Correct. I I absolutely agree with everything you said. Uh they basically are like Disney. They've got tons and tons of IP. The problem with them is they've always wanted to do integrated model. They do, they do license out their their IP periodically. It's not something I I don't get the feeling that Nintendo wants to do that as a primary approach on mobile. It's difficult for them to replicate Niantic's model because Niantic has the data and they don't. There is a case here for partnering with Niantic. Clearly they've got the IP. They've got very very valuable IP. and niantic has a platform that is very difficult to replicate and obviously niantic's basically come out and said that what we wanted to do is partner with the ip owners and create new games so i know there've been hoaxes about a harry potter go game but i wouldn't be surprised to see it if i'm nintendo i am an investor in niantic i am picking up the phone and calling them and i'm making a roadmap for like every single major ip i own that's what i we should that's what they should be doing i don't i i'm I, i'm hopeful they're doing that because that's where they're going to make their money and hopefully they a better revenue sharing agreement than they had for pokemon go because for pokemon go they're not really getting a whole lot but the pokemon go numbers are also plateau and flatten as well right the monthly active users have actually decreased quite rapidly as well so i mean niantic's business model also has its own challenges as well in terms of user acquisition given that is the case so for niantic and nintendo will the situation go from friends to enemies because niantic can go to other content players and say Hey, you know, I have the largest AR platform. You can Game of Thrones, you can come on. Harry Potter, you can come on. You know, I can see a lot of games going into the yeah. Pokemon Go model. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if I'm Niantic, I've you've got a you're sitting on a gold mine right now, and you're going to every single IP owner. If, I mean, if Nintendo picks up the phone, great. If they, if even if they do pick up the phone, I'm talking to every single one because Nintendo's got great gaming IP, but there's larger entertainment IP out there. that could move to move to gaming i mean we already know that hbo has partnered with with gaming platform they partnered with telltale to create a, a game of thrones adventure game which was nice but it wasn't a great revenue generator they know that this is going to be a massive revenue generator if you are nintendo i still want to partner with niantic because you don't have too many options left if you want to make money on mobile your free trial plus paid access it might give you some visibility it's not going to make a lot of money for you if you want to make money you should be talking to niantic that's going to lead you to a situation where i'm sure niantic is talking to other game ip owners as well it's not just entertainment ip owners so nintendo is going to face a situation where they will be partnering with a company that is also partnering with their competitor that's going to happen and nintendo has to decide if that's worth it for them 
I could think of the analog models a little bit like, you know, having Lego toys and then you have the Disney edition, you have the Avengers edition, you know, you have yep. all the different other editions like the Minecraft edition, etc. Yep. So uh, Nintendo is a little bit like one of the content owners while Niantic is a little bit like Lego. Basically. A platform owner. Yeah, they're, they're a platform owner, right? Mm. And and I think that's the challenge here. So I don't know what Nintendo is going to do. I don't have a great sense for sort of their decision-making process and their and their culture beyond what I've seen in the last, say, six months to a year. Mm. So I'm not going to claim expertise on that. But I, I do know Niantic's model is going to be very, very hard to sort of compete with because everyone's sort of built on top of them. In fact, if you have heard that episode that I did with Sakantoto, the Nintendo did the investment because Ingress was one of the highest grossing games for a niche group of players. Yeah. And, uh, in in yeah. fact, I, I remember this uh, discussion when, when Niantic initially got in touch with the Pokemon company. So one of the executives of the Pokemon company was, was a level 11 Ingress player during, uh, and, and they were talking about Ingress during the meeting. So that's why the partnership happened very quickly. So they immediately got the concept. That would be remains to be seen. So before I come up with the last question, so what do you foresee this Nintendo Niantic relations? It's, it's very much like a content, a platform versus a content IP owner. Yeah. A little bit like what yeah. Facebook is doing to the news publishers, right? Yeah, and in some ways, what Google Maps is doing to Uber. Yeah, so I mean, <laughs> getting getting this whole conversation around, I mean, I guess business is, is never static. It's always yeah. dynamic and relationships tends to change over time. Yeah. So I yeah. think the theme for this episode was actually quite realistic. So what are your last thoughts on that? With friends like these, who needs enemies? <laughs> well, I'm going to tie in both the discussions we had in, in this segment. So I, I think Google and Uber and Niantico, Nintendo are going to increasingly compete with each other as things go on. But they're also going to cooperate because they have to. So... If you look at Google Maps ride-sharing tab, it only exists because Google directly partnered with Uber. You cannot pull, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the technicals are, but you cannot take data from Uber's platform without Uber's consent. Because some there, there have been some apps that have tried to become sort of an aggregator for ride-sharing services and Uber shut them down immediately. And Uber and Lyft have both shut them down immediately. So in this case, Uber is on Google Maps ride-sharing aggregation service because Uber, Uber agreed to it. And they're going to agree to it because... If you're Uber, you don't want a consumer to go to that tab and find Lyft and Get and not Uber. And the same thing with Niantic and Nintendo. They're going to compete more and more. I'm sure Nintendo wants their own game and they, they want to have some degree of independent success because that's important for their stock and their, their, their financial future. But at the same time, if Niantic becomes the cash cow for most gaming and makes becomes a defensible cash cow for gaming and, and entertainment IP, Nintendo needs to be there because if you're going around in the real world playing games with Harry Potter games, Game of Thrones games, I don't know, maybe Rayman games, you want there to be a Mario, you want there to be a Zelda, you want there to be a Pokemon. Mm -hmm. You don't have an option there. So you, uh, they're increasingly going to be both friends and enemies. <laughs> yeah I, I guess as much and I, I think it's a very very good conversation to have and i think that in the next year ahead i think we're going to have much more of these conversations given how much the tech world has shifted in this summer so samir help my audience how do they find you you can find me on twitter at samir underscore sing 17 or you can read my blog at tech-thoughts.net you can find me at bleongcw or at bernardleong.com. Subscribe to us at Analyze Asia, A-N-A-L-Y-S-E Asia. And you can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Acast, 
and Google Play. And of course, one thing that I would like to ask my audience is that if we were to do a subscription service, what are your thoughts? And if you can, just drop me a note. So once again, Samir, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks, Bernard. Glad to be here.